Welcome to episode nine of the Girls to the Front podcast. I'm your host, Harriet JW. Today's episode is a special one, and it's all about how to negotiate and navigate feelings of anxiety and imposter syndrome in a modern digital world. Here to give us her advice is business coach, author, and former anxiety coach, Samantha Hearn. Sam shares her incredible story on her experiences of anxiety and provides practical steps which you can take to help manage and overcome these feelings yourself. If you're enjoying this series, please make sure to subscribe, download and review. This really helps us get out to more people just like you. And if you're a female artist and you feel like you're not getting the recognition you deserve, I want to hear from you. So come find me at HarrietJW on Instagram and drop me a DM. I can't wait to meet you. Sam Hearn, hello. Hello. I am so excited to have you here on this beautiful Friday. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thank you. Excited to be here. So, we never let anyone get away without a quick fire round. Are you ready? Yeah, of course. I love it. Beer or wine? Wine. Holiday or hustle? Holiday. Biggest win this week? Talking to you. Uh, uh, What would your TED Talk be? Oh my God, my TED Talk would be... Never let anyone steal your magic. Boom. Flavour of crisps. Oh my gosh, there's two. I can't choose, I'm sorry. Cheese and onion on flame-grilled steak. Nice. Chocolate bar. Kit Kat Chunky. Movie. Oh my gosh, I've got two. Classic Dirty Dancing, but the one I would watch to pick me up, Angus Thongs and Perfect Snogging. If you haven't seen it, watch it. (laughs) Favourite quote. My favourite quote. If you don't do it, someone else will. Nice. I mix them up a bit. Sarah, producer, you might have noticed. All right. So is it an easy question? How do you fight anxiety? Is that an easy question? I mean, it's easy to say. I wouldn't necessarily say it's easy to answer. Let's start with how do you define anxiety? Good question. For me, I think the important thing about anxiety is that there is no one size fits all. And I really do. I'm really passionate about that because the thing that always makes people feel like their anxiety or their mental health is not worth talking about is because it could always be worse. And we have this mindset that if we're not having panic attacks, heart palpitations, sweating, sleepless nights, crying, can't go into shops, breakdowns, that it's not worth talking about and getting support. So my definition for anxiety would actually be if you, in any part of your body or your thoughts or your emotions, do not feel settled and calm and in a place of unease for a consistent period of time then that's worth talking to someone about so yeah for me anxiety is the small intricacies the things that happen that we just think it could be worse it could be worse we dismiss it we just ignore it and then soon enough these things become part of our everyday life and we end up tolerating a feeling or a thought of unease rather than recognizing that that in itself is is a, a state of anxiety so that would be my definition mm. I think that's really interesting isn't it because we somewhere we're led to believe that anxiety is like you know you can't sit still you're feeling very kind of hyped up but actually it can be experienced at a very low level and sometimes the lower levels are almost more stressful because it's just kind of always there oh my god a hundred percent I actually think that they're some of the hardest things to manage because we're all 
you know, highly functioning people these days. We have technology, we have jobs that are just so much more demanding in, in so many different ways. Boundaries are blurred so much more, relationships are so much more fluid. Things are so different. So these lower level experiences of anxiety are so common, but they're so unspoken about. And I think they definitely have more chance to play a, a really impactful role in our happiness you know, the, these bubbling thoughts that we just let fester. So yeah, I completely agree with that, that sometimes the lower level feelings of anxiety really can have the biggest impact for sure. Can you just talk a little bit um, again, what you said there about what it can actually feel like in your body, like to try and identify, yeah, that's anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. So again, whenever I do anything like this, I try and talk from personal experience. And when I was an anxiety coach and I spent a lot of time doing that, um, I, I try and give as many personal experiences as possible. So this might not necessarily be how you feel, but hopefully you can re re resonate in some way. So anxiety for me did a few things and we're going to get TMI here, but anxiety actually created IBS for me. Um, so I would really, really struggle to be able to go to the toilet if I felt anxious and my body would just, I, could, I just couldn't release anything. And yeah, I, I said that would be too much information, but it's true. And actually for women, that is a really, really big problem with our emotions because we hold a lot in our gut we hold a lot in our in our tummies and you know it's this life force for so many but for some of us it's this real hampering feeling so anxiety for me felt like it's almost like when you breathe and you need to take a bit of extra breath to get to that point in your tummy so I breathe normally and then I need to go Oh, and then you release. It's kind of like you need to get to a place that you can't get to normally and you just have this little knot. That's where it started for me in my tummy. But anxiety then felt like uh, I would get really hot and I would also just find myself in a place of um, I just felt tight. And mine wasn't, you know, I did have a few panic attacks and they were absolutely horrendous. And Anxiety was a daily thing for me and quite extreme, but I was always able to, on the surface, you'd think I was like I am now, very outgoing, very confident, bubbly person. But underneath that, my body was struggling um, and it got to the point that I would have to wake up half an hour before I needed to go to the toilet and just sit on the toilet to give myself time to relax. I mean, that's ridiculous. I, I mean, for half an hour, just because my body was in this constant state of hypertension, even sleeping didn't relax me. So yeah, for me, the feeling of anxiety was more just definitely started in the tummy and this feeling of just needing to breathe into a place that I could never get to. But it did, it was just tightness, I would say, like restriction. I just felt this constant restriction. Um, so that, that would be my definition. Hmm. And how did how did this come about in your life and when did you identify that it was anxiety oh how long have you got so i i always try and give the abridged version these days but you know i laugh and it's i don't laugh because it's funny i laugh because i've got to a point where i'm so in love with my story that i find it endearing almost but you know it is super super important to talk about so um, I, uh, my mum and dad separated when I was seven and my mum um, had an affair um, and we, I've got a twin brother and we stayed with my dad. So my mum, my mum worked shifts and uh, we stayed in the family home with my dad. Um, and he was, there was a 19 year age gap between my mum and dad. So when I was born, he didn't have children, got to 42 and then had two in one go, boy and a girl, you know, his life, he was just like, this is just the best thing. My mum was 28. And um, I think he loved her too much. 
when I, you know, as an adult, he was just so obsessed with her, but also with us, you know, it was like his world was complete. So when it was our birthday, he would buy her a present to say thank you for giving him us. So yeah, we stayed with him and he was really paternal and he did everything. He was the coach of my brother's rugby team, the chair of governors for our infant primary and secondary school. He would come to everything. He was just, you know, yeah, really top dad. Uh, strict though, you know, there were very firm rules, but he was obsessed with us. Um, so we stayed with him and then when we were 14, he went in for gallstones. He had to have his gallstones removed um, and he didn't come home. So he should have been in for 24 hours and the operation went wrong. Um, they cut his liver. He couldn't recover. He got pneumonia. He was in hospital for three weeks and he, yeah, he died two weeks before I went into year 10. Um, so even talking about it gives me goosebumps. You know, it was, that, was, it was, that was the hardest thing I've ever had to go through. Um, and it, that definitely uh, broke me. You know, like I remember, we were there when he passed away, obviously. Um, and I remember I, I just left the room and just, collapsed in in hospital I was like I don't know what I'm going to do like this is literally he he really was everything to us and that was really tough um but also as an adult I can understand how that affected my mum because not only was she not our main caregiver she now got thrust back into these two teenagers lives as their sole caregiver and the only person they wanted she couldn't give them so I, you know that must have been so hard for her uh, but at the time of course I didn't care about that I was this grieving teenage girl who and I was a daddy's girl um, so my mum had to move back into our family home and that was really hard. And my brother, my brother's got severe dyslexia and really struggled talking about his emotions. So he became really angry, got in with the wrong crowds. Uh, I was super emotional. So our house was just a real whirlwind of everything, to be honest. You know, and I don't use the word toxic in a bad way, but there was so much emotion looking back. You know, my mum was just like, what? I don't know what to do. My brother was this tear away and I was just this, you know, unconsolable mess um and that was a really tough time and I I loved school and I was a really good kid so I, I carried on learning and did really really well at school and anything I could control I then would so you know I did really I was head girl at school you know all of those things um and then when I was 21 my mum moved to Jamaica so uh she sold our family home and went to live in Jamaica and I was still at uni I was in my final year of uni doing a teaching degree my brother moved to Scotland to be with his now wife and I, for that next two years, moved five times with into, with different friends, with uni friends, with a boyfriend and his family. And that was, yeah, that that was, to, to say you'd, I, I almost felt like I'd lost the parent that I wanted, not out of choice, and the parent I got left me out of choice. So by the time I was 21, I was on my own and I was like, this is, what is going on? I just, you know, I, I'm a good kid. And I definitely had that kind of scorched child, you know, like, why, you know, I, I, why is this happening to me? And it was tough. And I was at uni. I was about to graduate as a teacher. So I spent all my time with teenage kids. And you have to, you know, obviously I had to put on a front um, to teach. Um, but in amongst that, effectively, I became homeless. So I, by the time I got to 22, yeah, anxiety was then well and truly just like my friend. It, you know, fear of abandonment, rejection, loss, grief. And then I really struggled with, I just wanted everyone to like me. I just really craved that, you know, and I, I talked about this the other day on my Instagram, but um, me and my brother haven't spent our birthday together since, and we're twins, you know, it's been over a decade. I haven't had a family Christmas since my mum left. I'm lucky now, obviously, you know, I've got an amazing husband and I've got amazing friends, but yeah, so from the whole of my 20s, I was riddled with anxiety, riddled. It was just everywhere. 
if someone read a WhatsApp message from me and it had two blue ticks and they didn't reply, that was enough to put me over the edge. I just could not. My anxiety was the smallest thing, you know, it was just out, out of control. Then I met my now husband and it became <laughs> an absolute, oh, it was just, it was terrible. So I met him when I was 21 uh, and yeah, until I was about 24, we, we bought a house after eight months with the money from uh, when my dad passed away. So I don't say that like I just suddenly, you know, it was off the back of difficult times. And obviously as a 21 year old to save that money and not spend it, you know, you have to have a good head on your shoulders. My brother didn't do that. He bought a car. Um, so we bought a house and that was it. I was just, it was the worst. I thought I found, finally found someone I don't want to lose and he could leave me. He's not related to me. So that was tough. Uh, and that's when it became out of control. He would have to give me a week's notice to be able to go to the pub. I just, I needed to know everything about everything. Then my panic attacks got worse. So then I, I got help. So I had counselling, obviously, as you know, when my dad passed away, but it was very different. So, yeah, that's how I ended up with anxiety being my best friend, really. So that's uh, that's the whistle stop tour. That is such an amazing story. And I think I just want to say, like, full disclosure here that Sam, who we're listening to, is now a business coach and she's my coach. So I've spent like hours on Zoom with Sam, but obviously never hearing any of this and not knowing like what's behind this like super motivational, smiley, happy coach. And I'm honoured to have heard that. So thank you for sharing it. And I think it will really help feed the, the next conversation. Yeah, of course. And obviously you a head girl. Come on. <laughs> I was so far removed from head girl and this is how you know right <laughs> Sam gets a bunch of money when she's young Harriet also gets a bunch of money when she's young because she jumped in front of a car when she was 16 Sam saves that money to buy a house which has obviously now appreciated and probably turned into more money Harriet goes to the nightclub fabric and buys everyone in the club a slippery nipple <laughs> And that is why you're head girl and I'm not. Um, But no, that's amazing. Thank you. And I, you know, it's so clear how that would manifest as anxiety because so much when you're that age, so much when you're changing as a human being, as you are when you're young and, you know, losing your dad in year 10, I could not think of a worse time for that to happen in terms of like attachment issues and belonging and knowing who you are and who you belong to. Like that is the time of life when you're the craziest and your hormones are the most wild. So amazing what you have managed to turn around. And I'd love to get into sort of how how that's happened and how you've transformed. You're a teacher, right? Yeah. We haven't actually got into that, so you can tell that story a little bit. But at some point, you decided to go... And also amazing that you became a teacher after all that happening to you in those formative years because you must have just been transformational for those kids that you then taught. So what happened next? How did you, how did you end up becoming a teacher and then leaving to, to build this business around anxiety? Yeah, for sure. I love that. So what happened next? Well... <laughs> Yeah, come on, I've got my popcorn. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so obviously when I was in year 10, I had a head of year. And um, and yeah, like I said, it was a really, really difficult time. But he was amazing. Um, and I remember I always, I've always been a really empathetic person. I've always been really emotional, like wore my heart on my sleeve. But I've always really cared. Um, and I thought, I know I would be good at this. So I, I always wanted to be a teacher. That's all I ever wanted to do. And when people say, you know, what did you want to do? That's what I wanted to do. So I went to sixth form, 
went to uni, did a four-year teaching degree, um, graduated with a first. <laughs> um, of course. Obviously, yeah, so graduated top of my class and um, went into teaching and I loved it. I loved, I'm so proud of being a teacher. It's, that's one of my proudest achievements for sure because, yeah, I definitely, you know, the kids I taught, I, I then became a head of years. So I was head of year seven, eight, nine, 12, 13, head of sit form. So I did like the whole, the whole array of years. And obviously my job then as a head of year was pastoral care. So, you know, I dealt with things from attendance and um, social care, going out at night, boyfriends, girlfriends, smoking, drinking to their academic achievement. So I was responsible for 200 kids um, on a daily basis, as well as teaching. So I taught two subjects to A-level. So I taught PE and RE uh, and I worked in a Catholic school. So I taught two subjects to A-level and was in charge of these 200 kids. So it was a lot. And yeah, I, I absolutely loved it. I loved it. It's, I, you know, I was head of girls PE for a period of time. I was a head of house. So I've always, I've always been good at leading, but I've always been good at inspiring, at motivating, uh, at giving people my energy. And I went into teaching because I wanted, it always gets me when I talk about it, but that's probably my biggest why. Um, yeah, I wanted kids to feel loved. That was my biggest thing. I just really wanted I really didn't ever want a child to let their circumstances hold them back, you know, like it was just this big, like, you know, oh, even now, you know, if, if I had to go back to teaching, I would. I loved what I did, but that was my biggest why. I just wanted every child to, to know that someone cared and that that was me so yeah the kids loved it but I was very strict so I got voted the second scariest teacher which did upset me because the scariest teacher scared me and I was like as if um so yeah I was very very strict but they knew where they stood and you know so yeah I love teaching but then it got to a point where um I worked in one of the top performing schools in the UK state schools um non-selective so that means that you don't you can't select the kids that go to the school and it's state so obviously you can get from a wide range of everything. Um, and it was, yeah, it was top 10 and that's based on grades. So to be then head of year 13, my year group got 92% A star to B. And then the following year, it was basically, you know, how can we beat that? So of course the kids do the work, but there's a lot on me, you know, making sure they get to revision classes. They're there on time. I was doing six till six, you know, it was long days, lots of parent meetings and I just got to the point, I wasn't even 30 when I was doing this as well. And I sort of thought, I don't know if I could do this until I retire at this level. And effectively, the only way was for me to eventually become a head teacher. And I, I didn't want to do that because then one, you're not teaching. Two, you're working even longer hours. And even though everyone says you get great holidays, it's not, it's, for what you do, it is such a thankless job. You only ever deal with the negatives. And yes, by the time you get to the holidays, let me tell you, you are absolutely fried. You don't enjoy the holidays. You need them. You are absolutely gagging for that holiday, especially in a school like mine where it is so high performing. So, I mean, I just sort of thought to myself, I wonder if I could do anything else. You know, I, I, I love what I do, but could I do it on a bigger scale? So I decided, and by this point, I'd worked through my own anxiety and, you know, my 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 challenges so I decided to set up an Instagram called a happy mind that was my first business and talk about anxiety and mental health um I self-published a book I started speaking on stages alongside people like Paul McKenna and Callum Best and you know had started really getting myself out there school obviously was super supportive they were like yeah you know you're meant for this go for it so I then spent a year and a half 
working full time and then doing that. So it wasn't even, nothing really happened at that point in my life that was poignant, like in my early years, where it was like, let's, you know, do something else. I just had this desire to see what else I could do. And yeah, leaving school was one of the hardest things I've had to do, you know, like really, really difficult. And some of the kids in my year group, they bought me a bracelet, I still wear it now. Uh, and it's a tree of life. Um, they got it from Pandora, like all got together. So yeah, like, you know, that was a really difficult time and they will follow me on Instagram now and, you know, cute. But um, yeah, I just, I was ready for more. So when I was ready and the business had moved enough forward and I was able to turn it into and transition my life without having to have a period of, you know, how will I eat bread and all of that, um, I, I left. So that's how it happened, really. I just wanted more. And I also wanted to share my message more. And anxiety at that point was such a big passion of mine. You see it in kids, but you see it in adults as well. And I just thought, no one talks about this. And it, it is a lot of the time the highly successful people that struggle the most because they have so much expectation, so much pressure. So, yeah, it, it then just became this quest to, to help people, really. So, yeah, that, that's what happened then. It makes so much sense, like the the linear journey of, of how this has all come about. And I want to just join the two points together and talk a little bit about young people and anxiety and the modern world. And how do you think it's different to be that age group? Um, because a lot of the people that, that listen to this podcast are quite young, you know, late teens, early 20s and, you know, all the way up, of course, as well. But I think... We're living in a very different time from, say, our parents or even, you know, people born in the 80s. Like we're growing up in a very different time right now. What did you see in young people in terms of anxiety? Oh, social media. Social media was t is tough. And it's also really hard for the parent or the teacher because you can't manage that. So I, Facebook didn't come out until I, I think I was at uni, maybe. So and at that point, everyone was just using it to put pictures. You could only put 30 photos in an album and you'd go out and it would be like Oceana part one to part 10. And it was just 30 pictures of a drink. So no one was really using it for anything but that or like statuses. So Samantha is thinking about chocolate. There was no real, <laughs> you know, do you know what I mean? Like Facebook was just this kind of like experiential, fun, connective thing. There wasn't like Facebook groups or business pages or like forums. It was just kind of you know, a bit like Bebo or MySpace. Yeah. It was just like that. Yeah. But for now, oh gosh, the majority of things that I ha had to had to manage was all around social media. Snapchat's a big one because obviously it disappears and it's just, you know, all using it. Yeah, so social media is the big one. The fact that they're so exposed. They're so exposed. And also as well, young people, and I say that like I'm old, I'm not, but you know, like the, the, the difference between the experience. But young people now from, you know, even up to early 20s, you, you have to experiment with life, you know? It's just the way it is, you know? You go out drinking in a park with your mates or you, you, do, you do all this stuff, you know? And I'm not condoning that, of course. You know, that's not what I'm here to do. But it's just to explain that that's the majority of us have had those stories but the majority of us have not had them documented and put on the internet or shared with friends or phones that had cameras on i didn't even have a camera phone you know we had a, had a flip phone motorola so it just wasn't as accessible so i think young people now feel so much more exposed it's so much easier to compare Obviously, comparison was always a thing, but not really like it is now. You didn't have access to celebrities and, and famous people and royalty. They weren't on the internet for you to just look up what they were doing on their daily stories. 
So I just feel like even if you're not in a state of, you know, your mental health is, is a vulnerable prospect for you, in general, the things you're exposed to now because of the power of social media, it's just unfathomable. Do you know what I mean, Harriet? Like when, when you were in your 18, 19, did you even imagine there'd be a day where people were doing stories of their like dogs and cats and you'd just be watching along because they're famous? I mean... It was in the cards, wasn't it? We watched Big Brother 24 hours just to see if someone would wake oh, yeah. up. <laughs> oh, my God, I forgot about that. <laughs> when it came out, everyone was like, oh, Helen's woken up. Hel- <laughs> Helen's woken up. <laughs> I forgot but... about that. <laughs> it was written in the cards. But, you know, when you were talking about that, what I would say was at the beginning of social media, like the most sordid thing that would happen is someone would change someone else's status to write, like, just done a fart. Yeah, it was never yes. like it was never like that connected with normal life and the stuff that you hear about now like I'm so glad that I was not a young person with those tools available because it can just completely ruin you and there's no wonder like what I've heard is that depression is uh, an attachment to the past and anxiety is an attachment to the future so it's a lot about worrying about what might happen and if you see that all those things are possible you know, like every time you go out and get drunk, you might know that whatever you've done said might be on the internet the next day. It's just, you know, I, I just don't know how I would have dealt with that when I was young. A hundred percent. And also not to veer too much down this route, but this is definitely a route to, to just acknowledge. Even things like porn, when we were younger, it was magazines you know, so you would go to the shop or whatever. And it obviously, I didn't do this, but, you know, people did this. And, and you'd go to the shop and it'd be like, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm going to try and get this magazine. And you'd put it under your bed. So it was all very passive, right? It was, it was not real life. And we didn't have the internet. Okay, fair enough, we got dial-up and blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, it wasn't, you didn't have it on your mobile. So for young people, the expectation of what that experience will be like has also been absolutely glorified, to, to a point of almost unrealistic expectation. So if you are a young person and you have different um, intricacies on your body that doesn't look like maybe what you've seen on the internet, you're like, well, am I normal? Also to the point when you are in an intimate relationship, am I expected to do these things that I've seen or I've been exposed to? So I think even down to, to those things, how we live our life, relationships, you know, married at first sight, dating in the dark, there's so, so much has changed around how in society we behave. And I think that that's a definite catalyst for anxiety becoming so much more prevalent because your social behaviours, the ideal version of them are on the web. And, and that's our now what we're comparing ourselves to, not our parents, not our friends, what we Google. So I think that's definitely something to just acknowledge, you know, whilst we're on this topic and for young people, absolutely, you know, it's a, it's a big thing. Yeah. Two things that you've mentioned that I would pull out in relation to the artist community um, that are mostly listening to this podcast is imposter syndrome and comparison. So whether it's comparison about your talent, comparison around how many streams you've got, comparison around what you look like, what your body looks like, who you're going out with, imposter syndrome as in, am I good enough to be able to do this? Should I be putting myself out on the internet? Because being a musician or being a creative creator, 
you have to be putting your work out there and you have to be bearing your soul. How do you overcome this kind of thing? Yeah, I love that question. For everyone listening, yeah, you're in that creative space, you're into music, you're either performing, you want to perform, you've got this thrive for this, you know, you it's in your blood, you know. If you're a creative person, if you're a musician, this is something that you've always had. You either act on it now or you act on it later. So I think for everyone listening to this, two things I would say. Definitely in this in this specific goal, make yourself known. This is the key thing, right? We will never ever be able to stop what other people are doing and feeling like we're an imposter to someone else because we don't live their life. So it's impossible for us not to compare to this 10 seconds we see of a stream versus the 40 million hours that they've put in to get there. So rather than trying to combat that before you start and think, well, I'm going to wait until I feel ready like I, like they are, or I've got that equipment, or I've got this melody, or I've got this band, or I've got this skill, and, and you're always waiting to benchmark on what someone else that you're comparing yourself to is doing make yourself known. Do something now that is creative, that is different, that is original. Like put yourself out there in a way that you want to be found. And for anyone that's listening that is in that, you know, that that comparison and this imposter syndrome in that music space, everyone, I always do this. I read a book once. There's bubbles flying around the world everywhere, like all around us. And each bubble's got a different idea in. The bubble can pop on your head and you get absorbed with that idea. You either use it or it floats off and pops on someone else's and they use the idea. So you are a creative. You are in this industry because you love it. You know, it's something that you love. So let the bubble pop on you and use it. So it, whatever it is, whether the melody's not finished, whether you've not got the right equipment, think of ways that you could be innovative. Think of ways that you could put yourself. And this is where social media has a positive impact, you know, because we, we choose what we expose ourselves to. So yes, you can focus on all the negatives and it's so good for us to acknowledge that, but social media has the power to change your life and let's not, let's not diminish that. So you can use social media as a toxic tool to say, oh, but so-and-so is doing this and so-and-so is doing that, but that could happen for you too. Social media could change your life. It could amplify your voice. It could get you seen and it could absolutely do what it's doing for others for you. If you choose to focus on that and getting yourself known, I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying it's going to happen overnight, but it's definitely not going to happen if you don't put yourself out there. So for me, the biggest way for you listening to this to combat the comparison and the imposter syndrome is to do something about it. Do not be a victim to someone else's success because it's not going to make success happen for you. Put yourself out there. And even today, I don't, re I don't watch the news, but there was this random thing on the TV and there was a man, probably in his 30s, looking after his granddad, taking him to Tesco's and he has early onset of dementia, but he used to be a singer. They're in the car singing. He videos it, sends it to his parents and his grandparents. It gets onto the internet. It gets over 100,000 views and he got a record label and he, got, and he became number three on iTunes for streaming. Make yourself known. Sit in your car and do stuff. Do reels, do tip, whatever it is. Innovate, 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 because that's what you're here to do. It's to create. You're not here to compare your creativity to someone else. And the other thing I would say, sorry, I could talk about this a lot, but the other thing I would say is if you've had a friend come to you and say, oh, you know what, I really, I've got this song and I really, really, I just really want to do it, but 
you know, five years ago, someone did something similar and it's done really well. And I'm just not, oh, what would you say to them? You wouldn't go, yeah, I'd, I'd sack that off. You'd be like, what are you talking about, Jack? Go and do it. So do that for yourself. Like you're not here to sit on the sidelines of your own life. And the more you spend on the sidelines on social media, the more it's going to eat you up. So get yourself on the active stage of your platform. It's your social media platform, your name, your handle, and put your stuff out there. That's what I would say. Be your own hype man. Yes, that, that's the only way to do it. And the music industry is filled with so much talent that doesn't get recognised. And that's why I love what Harriet does, because that's the whole principle. There are so many incredible people, so many incredible young people that allow their flame to be put out by other people's success or other people's journeys or the algorithm or the metrics. Spending time focusing on what truly matters to you, which is your music, is going to make you feel so much happier. It's going to put you in a better energy and in a better state. And if it starts with 10 people, then 20 people, it compounds. Everything compounds, you know? Like, what Harriet's doing now is compounded. She would have had to start with one podcast episode with not the right equipment, not really knowing what she's doing, like scrambling around to talk to people. But everything evolves. Like, you, you have to start somewhere. And if you don't do that for yourself, it's, you are. Yeah, you're putting yourself on the sidelines of your own life. And I don't, I don't think you should be doing that. There's a really amazing quote that I think plays into this quite well that's um, she's not your competition, she's proof that it can be done. I love that. And I think that's a really important one to remember that yes, you, you compare yourself to people online but you should only really be comparing yourself to yourself five minutes ago. Yeah. And actually that person might be, you know... 10, 20, 100 steps ahead of you on, on the journey. So use them as inspiration to get to where you want to go and know that it can be done because they're doing it. Yeah, and do you know what? Sorry, I, I love this. But this is the other thing I think of if you ever find yourself in that situation. Think of the teenage version of you that was heartbroken or a boy or a girl broke up with you and you literally thought it was the end of the earth. We've all been there and it's terrible, that first heartbreak. Or think of yourself on your first girls or boys holiday and you're literally like euphoric, like, you know, you feel like you're an absolute legend. Think about how you can just play to that version of you, that one person, because there will be someone that uses your music to get through a breakup, to get through a loss, to, to dance to with their friends. Your song can make memories for someone and whenever they listen to it, it will take them back to that place. Surely that is enough to get you to keep creating and producing. And that is enough to spark that confidence that you can make a difference. And everyone's success, especially in the music industry, doesn't have to lead to like Justin Bieber fest. It's not, that's not the only way you're a successful artist. That's that far from it. So think about how your music can impact someone's life. Music has the power to literally evoke so much emotion. So imagine that person, they need it. They need your song to dance to, cry to, cuddle up to, make memories to, you know, it's important. Yeah, and I think that's that's a really important thing to, to note and helps people to get out of that inside your head, um, you know, comparative, not wanting to post and things like that is it's not about you. <laughs> it's actually about the person that lists the fan or the person that listens to what you have to say like it's the same with me like I have days where I'm like I don't want to post at all but then I know that it's actually helping other people and hold that person in your head instead of worrying about you know how you're going to feel when you post 100% um, but I think 
I think I just want to stay on social media for a while just before we pull it back around to anxiety and talk a little bit more about ways to deal with it because you are very good on social media and I will put the link to Sam's Instagram in in the bio. So how did you come from somebody that had anxiety, presumably someone that didn't want to put yourself out there, to someone that can be your true self on social media, grow a massive following, post regularly, do everything you need to do to do social media well? How did that transition? Truth talk, I'm still not 100% myself on the internet like I am in real life. Still not. Like I, I mean, I am, but there's a lot that I there's a lot that I hold back on because that's my biggest trigger, you know, fear of rejection. And I am, I mean, I can say it in a conversation. I'm funny. I'm a really funny person and I'm really like zesty. I love being in social situations. I can be pretty quirky. I love that. Like, you know, me and Harriet knows we voice it all the time about random stuff. And, you know, it's not all business and, you know, strategy and success. You know, we we give our dogs voices and stuff like that. Like <laughs> Hudson talking to Vinny, like as if. But I love that stuff, right? Um, and there's still parts of that that I don't put online just because, yeah, I, I mean, that's still my my own my own insecurity and I'm, I'm happy to own that and I think it's important to own that uh, but what do, what do I do I think the biggest thing that I do is one thing I've always done you know no matter how difficult my life has been is I never want to not intentionally live my own life and that includes the bad times as well you know I never want to not be in it so when I was really struggling with anxiety I was fully present in that you know that was a fully present experience when I'm on social media, I want to have fun. It's my life, you know, like no one can do this for me. And I never want to be in a situation. This is my biggest motivator. I never, ever, ever want to be in a situation where I say I could have done better. I just can't live with that. I just can't like, and that definitely has a part to play in sense of approval and being accepted. And I know that, but it's something that I see as a strength now. So I own that. I just think, I don't want to think I could have done better. So if that means I'm on my social media, I'm going all out. I'm a very all or nothing kind of person. And if, I want, if I'm going to create a success, I'm going to. And I can say that. Anything I've wanted to create, I've succeeded at. Anything I've said I wanted, I've got. Through hard work and doing it myself. But that's, there's never, ever been something I haven't got. Ever. Uh, there might have been failings along the way. But if I said I wanted it, I've done it and I've got it. Um, and that's how I want to live my life. I want to live my life with enough conviction that I'm not regretting my own decisions. I can I can feel sadness about what's happened to me, but I don't want to do that to myself. There's so many people on social media that are more successful than me, bigger than me, blah, 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 blah. But I'm not them and they're not me. And all I can do is know I just don't want to regret and think I could have done more. So that, that's how I show up. And for all of you artists, you know, there'll always be, there's a perfectionist in you because you want the song to be finished or you want the melody to be just right or you want the tonality to work. And that's a big part of being a creative. You want that finished product to be the very best. But along the way, share that as well. Share the production of that. Share the journey. Share the tweaks, the changes. And, and then you'll never look back and think, oh, I wish I'd shared it before I changed it or I wish I'd shared it before it was polished. And, oh, wouldn't it be nice if someone saw the journey? So, yeah, that's what I do, I think. I mean, I could talk about that a lot, but that would be the thing I would say. Yeah. And I think that's, a you know, we're coming back round in society and in culture, particularly in the digital world, to that non-polished 
connection. You know, Clubhouse is a massive app. You can't fake it on Clubhouse. TikTok is massive and it's those really unfinished, like the videos that do the best are the ones that are like filmed off the hook in 10 seconds, no makeup, no hair. Like we're coming away from that Instagram on your first class flight with your champagne filtered life. Um, and I think that's a really positive move away from all this stuff that we've been talking about. But I just wanted to talk to one thing you said then about never wanting to have not done your best. So I would say that I suffer from anxiety and something that I've only ever identified as anxiety probably within the past two years. And it's a very sort of low level discontent. And the discontent is with where I'm at. So I want to be doing more, I want to have more, I want to be more successful. And and if I was to play into that idea of always doing my best or doing as much as I can, I don't think I'd leave my laptop. And I think, you know, so my partner is always like, you just need to stop for a minute all the time. You just, you can't be go, go, go at once. And I think that's what the sort of perfect storm is. So, you know, Sam knows that I have a tendency to have like an angry meltdown on a Saturday morning because that's when you stop. Or first two days of the holiday, I'm always a nightmare. So it's like that sort of tightly wound up spring that gets let go. But then on the same time, like most people would be like, what, Harriet, anxious? Because a bomb could literally go off and I'd be like, guys, it's cool. We can sort this out. Like, don't worry, just, you know. But it's this very sort of low level festering of brain always on, moving a million hours how can I, how can this be better? How can Secret Sessions be more successful? How can we help more girls to the front with girls, you know, how can we go, 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 go? How do you play those two things oh, easy. each other? Easy. I would challenge you to give the effort you give to the success of your business to your free time. If you ask yourself when you are unwinding or at the weekend or you are on holiday, am I giving this my best? Clever. That's what I do. So if I'm out with friends, I give that my best. If I'm sitting on the sofa, chilling out, that has my full attention. Like I just, so I totally hear you because I'm the same. You know, you can have this expectation, but I think, right, I have actively chosen not to do that right now, like not be on the laptop. So how can I just fully embrace this? So today, for example, I, I don't tend to work Fridays. So before this, I had a nap on the sofa. I said, if I'm not going to work, how can I give this my best? I'm just going to chill. I'm going to do what I want to do. So that would be my challenge to you. When you are having your time off, how can that become the success story rather than only the, the secret sessions, girls to the front, all of the work that you're doing, that's the only success. How can the holiday, the downtime, the Saturdays, the walks on the beach, how can that become the success for that day? How can I be amazing at relaxing? Yeah. And I love that as a challenge. I think because we are always able to be on because we have you know, our phones in our hand, our laptop at arm's reach at all times. And there is always something to do because we're all growing these channels. We've got all our socials. There's always a song you can write, a performance you can practice. But I love that as a give as much attention to being amazing at your your downtime as well. Yeah, it's important. You only great. get one life, remember. It's a great challenge. Yeah, you don't, you don't get to do this again. All right, so I just want to pull it back for a second to like physical activities that you can do and processes uh, to combat this anxiety if it is something that you're feeling, whether it's to do, you know, I work with artists who um, suffer from performance anxiety a lot, a lot, a lot around social media. So that's why we've covered that a lot. But what are the sort of physical things you can do with your time? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a lot of this in the book that I wrote because I'm a quite practical person. But the top two that I would give is 
you need to create your own language for what anxiety is for you because the thing that perpetuates it the most is having to constantly talk about it like explain it so every time you feel like that you explain it to your loved ones or whoever that's how you're feeling and it's like you you make it have more attention than it needs like oh I've got that feeling again what feeling oh you know that feeling of oh yeah that doesn't sound good yeah and it just makes it grow so you need to create your own that's the first thing your own language for it so in my house we created a color code system so we sat down when I wasn't feeling anxious and said okay if I feel white then we're okay if I feel pink, these are the things I need from you. If I feel red, these are the things I need. So he would say, when it was at, when it was rife, you know, what colour are you? And if I said pink, he's like, I know I need to do this. If I said red, he knows he needs to do that. Because that's the biggest thing that makes anxiety grow, whether it's performance anxiety or whatever it is, explaining it to someone and explaining it to yourself. So if you're on your own and you don't have a partner or a friend or anyone, do it yourself. Write this down and do your own anxiety scale. It could go from white to green, white to black, whatever colour you want. But what do you need in those moments? So when it is niggling, what do you need? Do you need to force yourself to sit on your laptop or do you need to exercise? Do you need to go and have a lie down? Do you need a bath? Do you, know, do you need to massage your feet? Whatever it is. And create this little action plan for when the anxiety shows up for you that you act on. It takes time. But when those habits set in, honestly, it's a complete game changer. And the second thing I would say is, if you haven't, read the book, The Chimp Paradox. It became my Bible. Um, and the biggest thing is to detach from anxiety being you. So mine was called Chip. So Luke, that's my husband. Um, he, Because that's the thing with anxiety, you can become really defensive. And you're like, you know, and or you're like, oh, I don't want to feel like this. And then you get really angry with yourself. And oh, uh, you know, and again, even if you're on your own, so detach from it. So mine was called Chip. So you'd be like, Chip is out of control, Sam. And I'm like, yeah, that is actually really true. And I'm like, I need to sort that out. And he's like, yeah, Chip is literally in control. Like, you're not thinking yourself. And I'm like, so true. Rather than going, you're literally crazy. You know, when you have arguments or whatever, you're literally mental. Like, it's not helpful, is it? And you just feel worse. And it's the same for yourself. So again, even if you're on your own, detach from it. Give it a name, Bertha, Barbara, whatever you like. And just be like, right, who's in control here? Is it you or is it Bob? And then it's like, right, now in my conscious mind, I'm aware that this has taken over. Whether it's in my body or in my thoughts, how can I consciously now take action? And again, that could be where you come to the action point list. Move your body, listen to music, whatever it is, call a friend. And it's a pattern interrupt. That's what you need. That'll be the third one, a pattern interrupt. You just need something to interrupt the thoughts in your brain or the feeling in your body. So that they would be my three biggest practical tips. Amazing. So we're going with name your, I guess not your anxiety, but name the sensation, that, the manifestation of these feelings. Yeah. And that will cause a pattern interrupt. And would you, do you recommend it? Because I know that there's a lot of like, you know, there's the typical, have you tried meditation? Have you tried cold showers? Like, do you recommend any of those kind of more traditional forms of relaxation and combating anxiety? I mean, again, I can only talk from personal experience. I don't do those things. So it would be unfair for me to, to recommend because I don't use them. I know that they do work, but for me, uh, and similar to you, Harriet, it just manifests in different ways. Uh, we're the sort of person that likes doing things. So meditating would make me feel more anxious because I'd almost just feel like I'm sitting in it. And I'm like, I, I mean, I feel bad enough as it is and now I'm just sitting with it breathing. So personally, I wouldn't use that. But if you are going to start doing it, the one type of exercise I would give is 
we never breathe through our nose, which is why people struggle with sinuses, hay fever, things like that. So the one breathing exercise you could try if you did want to do it is you breathe in through your nose. And you, when you breathe out, you make a noise. The noise vibrates all the way through your body and you'll feel it when you make that noise that, oh, you feel it. And you'll, you reconnect to your body. So if you did want to try breathing, that would be what I would try. And imagine breathing in all the anxiety, like, Oh, and breathing it out, whatever that noise is like, and actually physically releasing it and hearing that. And that just brings you back to yourself. You feel it in your chest, you feel it in your gut. So again, not necessarily manifestation, but it's called the lion's breath in, in yoga, um, which you would know. Um, so that, that's what I would do. Breathe in through the nose, definitely through the nose, and out through the mouth with a sound, whatever sound. It could be a nice calm sound, <sighs> whatever. But, you know, just do that with yourself and connect back with your body. And I think it's important to note that sometimes those external voices and people telling you what you need to do and, you know, the comparison of seeing everybody doing their, you know, Wim Hof cold water showers, getting up at 5 a.m., like that can be even more stressful in itself. So actually what you need to do is find what works for you and what works for you might be different each week or each month and not getting too attached to these routines and just just find what works for you and try to stick with it and try to ignore what other people are telling you that you need to do a hundred percent hundred percent I would definitely say try and get into a rhythm and you'll know if you're a really placid person and you are really really calm meditating could be amazing for you if you are quite tightly strung exercise so yeah definitely you have the thing I would say as well is self-awareness is not the same as self-judgment I'm aware of my personality type and I'm aware of the type of person I am so that makes me aware of what I would need so become aware of who you are and embrace it I can't I can't dull myself down like I, I can't be a calmer less lesser version of this now and I tried I tried to morph into different situations a lot in my 20s and that made me more anxious so become self-aware of who you are are you super spunky are you really really edgy are you really calm are you really active are you really outlandish are you an extrovert and and the techniques that you use need to suit your personality type and your energy so I would definitely say but own who you are and then you'll know how to serve yourself best Sam, you are incredible. Is there one thing that you haven't said in this interview that you wish you had? Uh, please don't be a bystander to your life. You can't do this again. Um, and I would always, I would always rather regret what I have done than what I haven't. And I'd always rather be able to say, do you remember that time I tried this and it didn't work than I wish I'd done that. So for anyone listening to this, you know, you have an incredible talent and you are an incredible artist please don't allow what anyone else is doing to diminish that talent because it's not, it's not going to help you get where you want to go. I'm Samantha Hearn and I'm done speaking. I'm done. That's a clubhouse in joke for all you guys out there. Thank you so much. That was so, 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 so good. And there's going to be so much in there for people to pull from. And what I love about doing this podcast is that, yes, it is for musicians, but it is so much wider than that. And it's about kind of society and the things that affect us. And I think what we've touched on today is such a big one. So thank you for sharing your story uh, and thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to the Girls to the Front podcast. You can find the amazing Sam on Instagram at underscore Samantha Hearn underscore or head to her website, samanthaherncoaching.com. If you want to come and see us on Instagram, it's at girlsttf. 
And remember I said, if you're a female artist and you feel like you're not getting the recognition that you deserve, I want to hear from you. I've got something that just might help. Come see me at HarrietJW on Instagram. And join us next time on the Girls to the Front podcast for how to get started on Clubhouse. Don't forget to subscribe, download and review and help us get this podcast out to more people like you.